Good morning. It's great to see you this morning. Um, just an FYI, we're going to hit this a little bit when we get to the point in the, the talk uh, this morning. But today is uh, National, I guess you could say, I think it's National Right to Life Sunday. And the reason I'm not preaching uh, on the issue of abortion is, um, one, I don't feel like the Lord gave me the liberty to do it today. We're studying through First Timothy. Secondly, and we'll see this in just a moment, I don't have to preach on abortion for the scriptures to address it. You can see this in a minute. The righteousness from God. We're going to see this in just a minute. It's going to, it's going to be clear in the text. But that becomes clear when you just study your Bible. You don't have to topically address it to convince people. If you study your Bible, if you will read it, it will walk you into that with you, without you ever having to come to the text and look for the issue of abortion. Does that make sense? It's like that. The Scriptures are just like that. That's why I call them the manual. It is the manual. If you will read it, it doesn't have to address what am I supposed to do when the Falcons lose. Right? It will teach me about dealing with my emotions and my idols and my issues. I don't have to talk about how to respond when sports don't go your way. I read my Bible and Holy Spirit applies it supernaturally. Does that make sense? So the reason there is an advance on the front of that issue is because there are some faithful pastors and teachers who are just teaching Scripture and He's working people into the truth. Alright? So if you're upset because I'm not talking on the issue of abortion this morning, get over it. Holy Spirit will deal with it. He's making advances on that front. We're winning the war and it doesn't have anything to do with me speaking topically on it, okay? You'll see that in just a minute. You cool with that? If not, there's some doors. They open and close real easy. You can just grab it, open it, and walk on. Alright? So it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And, and aptly enough today, 1 Timothy 1, 3-7, which is where we're, where we're studying from, the title today is The Wrong Use of the Scriptures. The Wrong Use of the Scriptures. Right? The Scriptures are not there for us to address issues topically. Okay? They're there to show us who God is, our need for Him, and how we can be reintroduced to Him. That's what the Scriptures are for. And it's crazy. When people get introduced to Jesus Christ, He changes their worldview. You go to pro-life because He doesn't give you an option. So it's just kind of the way it works. And so the wrong use of the Scriptures. As a way of introduction today, it's something that's just kind of been boiling me for a couple of years um, because I've always wrestled with the fact that I don't feel like I prepare when I preach and when I teach. Because um, I'm, I'm an educator as well by trade, and, and, and I teach here as well. And when I do worldview class, and I'm sort of a heavier kind of guy. Like, it, like I don't produce good feelings in people sometimes for some reason. I don't know why that is. Probably it's just my wiring. I don't know why. Uh, we have a tendency, and I, I wrestle with when it's time to come back to the Lord and respond to Him in worship, which we've been doing that for 11 years. It's just sort of our theology of worship. Is worship is a response we make to the Lord. It's not something we bring and initiate. It's we hear from the Lord, we respond to Him. So Isaiah 6, nerd them. Um, I feel like I don't prepare you well for that. And, and, uh, and, and something just sort of flipped in me over the past, past couple of years. It's been working in me, and I, I read this. Uh, by Jared Wilson, and it, it helped me, and, and I hope it's going to help you a little bit this morning, because we're talking about the wrong use of the Scriptures, you're not going to necessarily walk out of the backside of this sermon and go, well, I want to sing to Jesus. You're going to be like, oh God, am I using the Scriptures wrong? And, 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 but we're going to ask you to come and sing to the Lord, right? And, and so I'm sort of cutting my nose off despite my face kind of thing, but I, I want to help you, okay, and help myself. A little quote from a guy I really love and respect. You've probably never heard of him. And he's never met me. And I'm going to stalk him at the pastor's conference. It's February because he's going to be there. Um, I like guys that nobody is into. Um, it's kind of my deal. Once something becomes cool, I drop it. Because everybody else thinks it's cool and it's not cool anymore to me. So I'm sort of, I like being one of the only people that likes something. That's a sin issue. I know. So just go ahead. It's one of my sin issues. Uh, but nobody really knows about this guy. And I like him a lot. Um, Here's what he says, that the sermon is music of its own. And this helps me too, and it's just, I'm just laying my heart out before you, is, is I don't get to come to church and worship. 
This is work for me. It's not bad work. This is like Post and said, and by the way, he's like that all day, every day. You should work here. It's amazing. Um, he's like that all day, every day. I love sitting and listening to this cat teach history. And I don't get to go do it. Uh, but when he talks about history and other things, it fires me up. Um, my work is a great joy to me. I was made to be a teacher. I was made to teach. If I didn't teach, I would die. I was made to teach. And so when I say this is work for me, don't hear, oh, it's a drudgery. Here, this makes me happy, right? This fires me up. It fires me up. I can't wait to come teach students. I can't wait to teach on Sunday mornings. I love teaching. And this has really helped me to see that even though the content of a talk may be a little heavier, this is my worship. And whether I come on the backside ready to sing or not for me personally is really not the point because this is my offering to the Lord that He then takes and does things in you that I can never say or speak. The sermon is music of its own. No matter the text, no matter the topic, the tune is the joyous anthem of God slaying the dragon, a redemption song. And so what I lay before you this morning is the continuation of the song. And it's the song of God slaying the dragon, slaying the evil one who has introduced rot and death into humanity so that we would have to stand and instruct in the right use of the Scriptures and the wrong use of the Scriptures. So this is my music this morning. This is my song. No matter the tune, whether it's happy, whether it's heavy, it's the joyous anthem of God slaying the, the dragon. It's a redemption song. So I pray you hear it that way this morning. And I pray that it is a tool to move us toward responding to the Lord. So let's go and ask Him for that right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, for the glory of your Son and His kingdom, we pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would do a work of grace in the hearts of your people. That, Lord, as I present this song to you, that you would present it to your people. And that, Lord, you would move in ways that I can't. You would speak in ways I cannot to the dark recesses of every heart. And that you would encourage, heal, correct, rebuke, and, Lord, do amazing things that we can only dream about. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, the precise beginning, 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 7. Let me read it. Let me read it. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. The precise beginning of the church at Ephesus is not completely and exactly known. However, we can construct what we do know from the book of Acts. And by the way, when you're reading the letters of the New Testament, a great thing to do while reading them is read the book of Acts too because you can follow the history of their establishment to some degree and get a little background on them. Priscilla and Aquila were involved in the early shaping of the church and maybe in its founding because Paul left them there on a brief visit as he left off from Ephesus to head back to Antioch around 52 A.D., while on the second missionary journey, you can read that in Acts 18, particularly verse 18 to 22. But when Paul returned to Ephesus, he stayed there for two to three years. And he had a strong two to three year stint of preaching in the local synagogue. You'll read this in Acts 19, 8 to 10. And when he was removed from the synagogue, he went to the hall of Tyrannus and began teaching there as well. Paul's ministry at Ephesus was a strong ministry. The gospel did some amazing, transforming work among the people. Go read Acts 19 to read about some of the transformation of the gospel there. The idol-making industry took a massive economic hit because of the gospel. It created an uproar and it led to the Ephesian riot that you'll read about in Acts 19 because idol-makers are all of a sudden losing money. Hey man, when the gospel starts transforming people so that they stop pouring God's resources into their hidden idols, it creates problems. And there's a riot. So the ministry at Ephesus was established. It was a powerful ministry. 
And the church at Ephesus became a powerful ministry center for the Asian world. Because Ephesus was probably, arguably, the most important city in the Roman province of Asia. So from Ephesus, the evangelization of Asia Minor would launch. So do you think it matters what's happening at the church at Ephesus? You may nod. Yes, it matters. So much so that in Acts chapter 20, verse 25 to 31, Paul addresses the Ephesian elders in his farewell address. And I'm going to give you a snippet of it. I'm going to read it to you. Acts 20, 25 to 31. And there's more he says to them. But I want to bracket out this little snippet that Paul speaks to these Ephesian elders. Listen carefully. Lord, give them ears to hear. And now behold... I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to the care, uh, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. As Paul writes this letter of 1 Timothy, a few years have passed, perhaps five, depending on how you date the book of 1 Timothy. I dated around AD 64. Trouble has come to the church from within, just like Paul said would happen. And some savage wolves are after the sheep. Paul has sent Timothy to Ephesus to deal with this problem. It's vital, absolutely essential, that this mission succeed. So Paul sends Timothy some instructions and some directions about conduct and order in this little book called 1 Timothy. As we saw last week, this greeting that we studied last week was intended to strengthen Timothy's heart and his hand in this task. And that these instructions are God's instructions. And that the Lord's care for him was abundant. And this care is more than able to overcome in these weaknesses that Timothy possessed. But at the same time, however, this greeting is also very ominous because it doesn't include Paul's normal thanksgiving for the church that almost all of his letters contain. What was taking place in Ephesus was no cause for thanksgiving. So Paul gets right to work charging Timothy with his task. So let's get to work with him. Let me read it again. 1 Timothy 1, 3-7. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. If you're tech-savvy, internet-capable, these notes are available on mitchdolly.wordpress.com. Most of you already know that. And you can follow along with me or you can go look at them later. And if you listen along online, you can follow the notes from there. Point number one, coming from verse 3 and verse 6 to 7. Paul's instructions to plant your life and command false teachers to stop teaching false doctrine. He tells Timothy, plant your life. And command, charge false teachers to stop teaching false doctrine. He says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Why? So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Check out verse 6 and 7. Certain persons, these people, he's telling Timothy, charging them to stop, cease, desist. He said, by swerving from these, what are these? The right teachings, the truth of the Scriptures, have wandered away into vain discussion. 
desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Let me draw some observations from verse 3 and verse 6 and 7. The first thing I want you to note here that's super important is that right teaching is an immediate need and a long-term task. He says, as I charged you, remain at Ephesus. There's a charge here. It isn't, well, if it fits your time and you're not too busy strategizing and building your next career step, getting your resume ready, because after all, when you've done a good job here, it's time to move on and climb the ladder of success, right? No, remain at Ephesus. It's an immediate need and it's a long-term task. When it comes to teaching right and using the scriptures properly, it's an immediate need. It, it, it's not like, okay, we can wait a few weeks and we can just kind of play around and just sort of make everybody happy and make sure everybody's comfortable. As I charged you, as I urged you, remain at Ephesus, it's an immediate need and a long-term task. Listen, if we stop teaching the Scriptures, we will begin to wander away into pragmatism and other worldviews that draw us away from the truth. The tendency of every fallen heart is to begin to move toward what appears to work as opposed to what is true. Listen, just because it works doesn't make it true. The Scriptures never tell us to just do what works. We assume that it's our job just to survive and live. That's a bad assumption. My job may be to die and make Jesus look good in my dying. Well, it works to rescue yourself. The boys yesterday morning, I love, I love boys. They were playing persecution. This is, this is what they called it. And I love this. This made my day. And they were playing like the Roman soldiers were persecuting them. But then Daniel was waiting till the Roman soldiers left and he was shooting them in the back. <laughs> Man, that was awesome. Because that's kind of where I am. I'm not sure I'm ready to let the Roman soldier have his way. It, it works to rescue yourself. It works to deliver yourself. I am capable of delivering myself. We have some neighbors. You know, the, the cat that came on my doorstep and tried to break in right before I left for, for our country. You know, they caught him, right? But I met him with a barrel of a 9mm. That was awesome, right? But my neighbors across the street this week got broken into. And so they came, and this happened in broad daylight, like while we were all home, 5 to 7 p.m., and they came up across the street and, you know, we're ready to go to work. And, you know, it, it, it works. We can deliver ourselves from such things. And I'm not saying you shouldn't because I was ready to shoot. Man, it's good. You can walk in. I can safeguard my home. I can buy an alarm system. I can make, I can't pay for it, but I can buy one and default on payment and maybe keep it or something. I don't know. I can deliver myself. I can come up with ways to deliver myself. But the Scriptures don't tell me to deliver myself. They teach me to trust the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Meaning, if that's true, my understanding's flawed. Which is why I can't exist in isolation. I need other men speaking truth to me. Because I can get in my world and I, I can work myself in some fantastic solutions. Are they God's solutions? I don't know. Because I can devise my own way. So therefore, right teaching is immediate and it's long term. We can't drift from that. We can't move into those things. We must hold forth the Scriptures and let Holy Spirit do His supernatural work at convincing. It's immediate and long term. You need it today more than you think you need it. This is why gathering with the people of God to hear preaching is not throwaway time. This isn't optional. We don't mandate you come, but I would say this to you. Jesus mandates you come. Because the assumption is there are other things that need your time more. That's a bad assumption. You need to hear from God in the people of God from the mouth of... And this is why preaching is different from teaching. Preaching is supposed to have a passion to it. Because there is an immediate... This is why the word preacher is different from teacher. It's the idea of a herald, somebody... 
proclaiming important news that needs to be heard. You need to hear from God more today, right now, than you need to do the to-do list. Your soul is at stake. And it's the job of the preacher to shake you through the Scriptures to cause you to stand up and pay attention and realize that I must strive for godliness. Physical training is some value, he's going to tell Timothy. But godliness has life in this life and the life to come. There's value in following Jesus more than training your body today. That's either true or it's a load of crap. And if that's the case, you need to hear this morning more than you need to do anything. You need to hear there's an immediate need for you to hear from God and obey. Heaven's at stake. This is not throwaway time. It's essential that you and I hear and obey. But it's also a long-term task. We must stay after it. It's not enough to just let it go. Preach one sermon and move on. It is a weekly, daily task of staying in the text and letting the text determine function. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Another observation from these three verses, verse 3 and verse 6 and 7, is right teaching involves demanding people to stop teaching different doctrine. He says, charge certain persons to not teach any different doctrine. It's not a suggestion. It's not if you feel like it. It's stop. This is why you can't be a weakling and be a pastor, men. You need to be capable of demanding and following up that that demand be kept. You can't afford to roll around on the ground and suck your thumb if people don't like you. You have to stand with a target on you and stand tall in Christ and demand that rightness be done. It's not a task for wimps. Teaching involves demanding people to stop teaching different doctrines. The idea here is that right doctrine is important and different doctrine is deadly. We're going to see in just a moment that it matters what you think, it matters what you believe, and heaven is at stake. Jesus said in Matthew 7, and this to me are some of the most shaking, fearful passages in the whole Bible. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? Effective ministry, supernatural ministry, demon casting out in your name. Jesus' response, you're not mine. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. If we don't persevere in the text and persevere in rightness, heaven is at stake. Truth is at stake. And so therefore, right, teaching involves demand people stop teaching different doctrine. There are places where there's room for us to agree to disagree. There are places where there is no room. This is why we do a membership class so we can tell you some of these things and instruct you on some of these things that we will put down in front of you and demand. And as a church, we grow in understanding those things as we shepherd hearts. Listen, there is nothing like shepherding people that will cause you to go to the text and lean hard on what Jesus says. Because it's not just being right that's at stake, it's hell or heaven. And it's that vital right now. Third observation from, from these first three verses that we've looked at is swerving from right doctrine is to wander into vain discussion. By swerving from these, they have wandered away into vain discussion. If we swerve from the text and we move into speculations, our discussion is worthless. You know what vanity means? Worthlessness. It's vain. It's useless. If I'm moving into speculation in my teaching, then I'm wasting my time right now. I'm better off on the interweb getting ready for the football this afternoon. Seattle's going to win. Denver's going to beat New England, right? 
It's vanity. It's worthless. By swerving from right teaching, we wander into vanity. The implication is that right doctrine has practical use. Right doctrine has practical use. Meaning that if I think rightly, it will work itself out into right practice. We'll see in just a minute. We're going to come to a passage that's huge for me. Just, just a few words that can change your worldview. Another implication is that different doctrine is useless. If we wander from the truth of Scripture, it's no good. Another implication, number four here, is that swerving from right teaching is ignorant, not deep. He says here, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding what they're saying and then making confident assertions, he says, about what they're saying. Rabbis were called teachers of the law. Look at Luke 15, 17, Acts 5, 34. And some of these teachers coming out of this body of elders or possibly some of the members of the church, these elders and these teachers in Ephesus seem to be aspiring to be Christian versions of rabbis, desiring to be teachers of the law. Authoritative interpreters of the deep things of the Old Testament. Without understanding what they are saying, making confident assertions. Swerving from right teaching is ignorant. It's not deep. Be careful about thinking something's deep, and if it's deep, it's right. There's a good shot. If it's deep, you could be wrong. Depth does not equal truth. They were desiring to be teachers of the law. Authoritative interpreters of the deep things of the Old Testament. Deep doesn't necessarily mean right. Deep could be the abyss. Which leads me to the second point this morning. What's the nature of this false teaching? What's the nature of what is happening at the church at Ephesus that Paul dispatches Timothy to go and correct? First part of verse 4. Comma nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. He tells Timothy, charge these people to stop teaching different doctrines, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Myths and endless genealogies. The Old Testament is full of genealogies that make perfect fodder for myths. Check out Titus 1.4. When we get to the book of Titus, we'll see that. Read your Old Testament? Loaded with genealogies. I'm fascinated with genealogies because they point to historical reliability and accuracy. That's, that's what a genealogy does. But when you read genealogies, you know some pretty cool names and pretty cool people. And if you read your Old Testament long enough and you spend time in the Scriptures enough, you'll notice, well, that's some pretty interesting people. Well, I remember reading a story about that person way back here. That person did some pretty cool work. And you start wondering, ooh, what else did they do? The Old Testament is full of genealogies that make perfect fodder for Jewish myths. The fanciful, allegorical creation of stories about the people in these genealogies. As a matter of fact, there are a couple of books. The Jewish tradition uh, included books like the Book of Jubilees that was written in 135 B.C. and was very affluent from 135 to 105 B.C. It's a fanciful rewrite of Old Testament history from the creation to Mount Sinai. And then there's another book called Biblical Antiquities of Philo, around 70 AD, which retells more of the Old Testament story from creation to the death of King Saul. And there were ample allegorical models for the Ephesian teachers to turn into fanciful stories, myths and genealogies, and beginning to build doctrines off of those tales. And Paul says they are not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which then lead to what? Speculation. These allegorical tales made for speculating. It may not be that these teachers set out to be heretical. They just wanted to go deeper and beyond the simple exegesis of the text that Paul had done while among them. They did not set out to abandon the gospel doctrine that salvation is by faith alone, but in fact, their progressive accretion smothered the gospel. Sometimes in a desire to go deeper, we may move on to myths and speculations and end up smothering the truth of the gospel. And we're going to talk about at the very end some ways to avoid false teaching. 
The simple exposition of the text is right on. Seek not to go further. You will find yourself into myths and endless genealogies and speculations and these will lead you to the abyss. Paul says to Timothy, they are not to devote themselves to those things. Number three. I just noticed a typo in number three. My, my, my eyes see two O's and now I see one. It says God practice, but it should be good practice. That's what dyslexia will do for you. Even spell check don't catch those things. Good practice comes from knowing God, not by inquiring on how to do stuff better. Look at the second part of verse 4. Just read all of verse 4. In order to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Myths and endless genealogies promote speculations rather than, so you see the opposing ideas here, myths, endless genealogies, speculations, as opposed to the stewardship from God that is by faith. Stewardship from God by faith is contrasted with speculations. The word stewardship is a fun word. It's oikonomia. It sounds like economy. And that's exactly what it is. Oikonomia is from the root word oikos, which means house or house order. Oikonomia is the management or the good order of a house. And it's contrasted ideally with zetasis, which is philosophical inquiry. Meaning the myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations are set in contrast to the stewardship from God that is by faith. Meaning, mere, ethereal, speculative, philosophical inquiry is opposed to the good management and the good order of the gospel. They were to run from devoting themselves to speculations and run to the akoinomia, the good management of the gospel. These guys were seeking to go deeper and neglecting the practice of managing the advance of the gospel. These are the people who have three Bible studies and do nothing with their faith. These are the people seeking to go to the fifth connect group, but never have an outlet for the gospel. These are people whose Christianity exists only in their mind and in their philosophical inquiry, and they never seek to put it into practice. These are the guys staying up till 3 a.m. asking dumb questions to equally dumb friends and never acting on the truth that they know. The gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, is infinitely practical. It has an outworking. And it's not up to me to tell you all the ways that works out in your life. We have have an idea as a church what our strategy for implementing the gospel is. Global, local. But it's up to the Spirit of God to show you through the study of the text how you are to get into those areas and begin to work out the faith. Not finding another way to keep asking dumb questions. Going deeper is not the solution. Acting on what you know is the solution. If you do not act on what you know, you become a cesspool of information. And with no outlet, all things become stagnant. You want a fresh move of God? Start doing something. And if you don't know anything to do, basic Christianity 101, go preach the gospel to lost people. Rome's full of them. And look, I don't care what your strategy is. If you want to be the guy on the corner, I don't care. Just do something. You pour out. Truth has a way of fueling more outpouring. Notice 
the wording here. And this is, this is worldview shifting. They're not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God. Stewardship from God. Three words, stewardship from God. In other words, the oikonomia, the management of the gospel comes where? From God. Not from the sharp strategist guy. Not the guy whose strategy is good. The stewardship, the oikonomia, the good order of the gospel comes from God. In other words, right order and practice comes from God. And to get right order, one must know God. In other words, the primacy, the most important piece is to know God. That's called theology. Theo, God. Logi, a word. A word about God. The study of theology is never irrelevant. And frankly, there's little movements of people inside Christianity. And I saw a stupid article by somebody a few weeks ago, and the title was, Your Systematic Theology is Showing. As if somehow, being seeking to be accurate about your knowledge of God is somehow inappropriate. What I would say to that person is, read your Bible. It is never inappropriate to seek to know God better because the stewardship comes from God. Meaning, my knowledge of God will influence my practice, my stewardship of the gospel. Does that make sense? The less I know God, the weaker my stewardship of the gospel will be. The less I know God, the more I may end up in myths and endless genealogies and speculations. I must put my eyes and my soul into knowing God. And this is, hey, Christianity 101, how do you do that? It's in the manual. That's the manual's job is to show you who God is, who you are, what the gospel is, how you are rescued. And when you seek to know the God of the Bible, He does this crazy thing of putting it in order. It's crazy. You then have to run from that. You have to... Run from it speedy to get away from it because he starts talking to you. If you read your Bible as a Christian, spirit will not leave you alone. That's the way it works. And as we stand and we speak Scripture to you and we speak the Bible and we preach the Bible, it's crazy how he puts stuff in order. I'm coming to the greater conclusion. God doesn't want my strategy. He wants my soul. And when I'm radically in love with Christ, He will put a strategy in place that will blow the lid off the greatest person who's a strategic thinker on the face of the planet. He doesn't need my plan. He wants my soul. And as we are plugged into Christ, what do we call that? The radical life. Where does the life of the community start? By being in communion with God. What does He do when we're in communion with Him? He puts us into community with each other. What happens to a bunch of Jesus followers in community with each other? They start impacting the culture. Colliding with culture. God has a way of birthing ministry when people know Him. You want a way to challenge the abortion issue in our country? Know Jesus Christ. Know Jesus Christ. Jesus was radical. Jesus went in and turned over tables. Jesus could put it in the heart of somebody to be radical on that issue. What are you willing to get arrested for, for Jesus? Jesus went and got crucified. You know God, here's what J.I. Packer says. Love Packer. He's passed on now. You should, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, should be in your top five must-reads. One of Packer's thoughts in that book is, the more you know God, the more you begin to act like Him. Practice comes from God. Stewardship comes from God. Good order comes from God. The more you know Him, the more you'll be passionate about what He's passionate about. I can't stand here and talk about abortion and get you to be passionate about it. The more you know God, the more you will have a passion for life. The more you have a passion for life, the more you're willing to fight for it. The more you're willing to go to battle for it. So, what's my strategy? Tell you about Jesus. Open the Scriptures. Pour the Scriptures out to you and let Spirit produce a work in you that I can only dream about. People willing to get arrested. People willing to go run for office. 
people willing to smear their own reputation for the sake of Christ. Jesus never told you to guard your reputation. He told you to follow Him. Now, I mean, don't hear, go sin, and smear your reputation with rebellion. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Don't hear that. Here, it's not up to you to maintain your reputation. It's up to you to follow Jesus. And if you follow Jesus in all things, He'll take care of your reputation. That guy's crazy. He got arrested for the sake of the gospel. I know. Awesome. This stewardship comes from knowing God. So what are we going to do in here? I'm going to tell you about God. I'm going to default to theology. I'm going to default to unpacking the scriptures for you that unpack the nature and character of God. He will take care of the details. Number four, what's the purpose of the command to teach what is right and demand what is wrong to be stopped? What's the purpose? Why would Paul tell Timothy, go command that the false doctrine be stopped? Here's why. He says the aim, verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What's the purpose? Love. It's love. What is this love? And I'm sorry, like I'm, I'm smiling now because I hear, what is love? Baby, no, I'm sorry. I can't help it. I've been totally messed up by SNL. And I hear, I see Will Ferrell, and I'm sorry. What is love? this morning I laughed myself till I nearly woke people up I don't think I woke people up in the house I was reading over this and went dude that's just so I put I put this in there to try to get me not to say that but because I, I said what is love and I was doing it and then I put this so I tried it and then I can't help it I'm here so and I just ruined your morning I'm sorry what is love okay um, what's the purpose of teaching people what's the purpose demanding that wrong teaching be stopped it's love it's love Matthew 22 37 to 40 kind of love. Jesus was asked, what's most important in the law? And Jesus answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus proclaims the classic dimensions of love here when he summed up the Ten Commandments by telling us to love God with all of our being and our neighbor as ourselves. And he says that all the law and the prophets hinge on this. Little quote from Piper for you about what love is. Love is the overflow of joy in God. The overflow of joy in God, which gladly meets the needs of others. In other words, love for God leads to love for each other. And their need for good management of God's people doing God's mission, not seeking more spiritually and deeper experiences. Where does this kind of love come from? A love that starts with loving God and then works into loving each other. Paul says here, it comes from a pure heart. It comes from a pure heart. Listen, you can't love God and your neighbor unless you have a heart transformed by the gospel. If Jesus hasn't transformed you, you won't love him so as to put him numero uno in all things, nor will you love each other. You'll bail on each other when it gets hard. You go find another church to go to. Love like that comes from a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. It starts with, I want to love God with every fiber of my being. That involves your intelligence. That involves your emotions. All of it under the banner of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I'm seeking with everything in me to know Him and love Him. I know this sounds so super basic, but read your Bible. It's crazy. It's crazy what the reading of the Scriptures will do. Craziness. And you know what that'll do? And this is where it gets uncomfortable. It starts to expose places where you need to be fixed. Where I need to be fixed. This kind of love comes from a transformed heart. The Jeremiah 32, 38, and 39 kind of heart. A heart of flesh operated by the Holy Spirit. He also says this kind of love comes from a good conscience. A little quote, and it's me, so I quoted myself. Conscience is one's inner awareness of the rightness of their actions informed by the Spirit and the Word. There are some places in the Bible where Paul tells the people... They're to obey their conscience when it comes to what they drink and what they eat. 
And when the word and the spirit inform one's inner awareness of their actions being right or wrong, it is absolutely essential that we as Christians obey that conscience. When it comes to matters that happen to be secondary in our practice of the gospel. And Paul says, our love for you comes from a pure heart and a clean conscience. Meaning our conscience is clean toward you. We have spoken God's word to you. We have given the scriptures to you. We have laid out for you a way of life. And I'm clean before God and before man. Here in 1 Timothy, this conscience means the sense of one's moral actions as part of the group. Their moral actions as part of the group. You cannot isolate yourself and your actions from the whole community. When you do, your actions affect the community. Your actions are intended to be filtered through what's good for the whole community and not for you alone. Biblical morality is in place and this causes love to issue forth. If your morality's off, love will be the first thing to go. Morality's not irrelevant. You are not saved by your moral standing, but your moral standing comes from a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. It's not irrelevant. If sin is ruling your life, then your conscience cannot be clean and love is shut off toward other people because people in sin are ultimately selfish, seeking self-centered things and therefore they are not quick to repent but quick to defend themselves and quick to stay in their sin. And he said this kind of love also issues from a sincere faith. Literally, straight out of translating it into English, a faith without hypocrisy. In other words... If one really believes, they're really going to love. If you've been transformed by the power of the gospel, love will happen. Which is why it's worth fighting for. Paul's heart was pure. His conscience was clean. And his faith was real. Therefore, he and the apostles and the other leaders could not but command that false teachers stop. He loved the church too much and he loved the false teachers too much to allow them to pillage themselves and others Because the end for them is destruction. A harsh command is not a failure to love. It is love. The unfortunate thing is we have this idea of thinking love equals nicety. If my kid's playing in the road, and they do. Probably a bad parent. I have boys. They ride bikes in the road. They play war in the road. Because sometimes the best ditch to hide from airsoft and BBs are in, across the road. And you can't play good war if you can't hide in a good ditch, right? So they play on the road. But if I'm outside playing airsoft with them, and I actually shot John Mark in the lip with a BB gun over Christmas break. It was pretty awesome. It was a great shot. He had, uh, he had goggles on. I mean, dude, it was a good 100-yard shot, too. It was, it was amazing. We play rough. Sorry. <laughs> But I love John Mark. Just got shot him in the lip. The man don't love him, right? But we're playing in the road. And if I see a car coming, he doesn't see the car. Should I go, uh, John, John Mark, why don't you kind of step out of the way? John Mark. Mark, please move. I'm going to run at him with my 6240 speed. And I'm going to head up, wrap him up. And I'm going to waylay him. And I'm going to land in the ditch on top of him. And I may break a collarbone. But by God, he didn't get hit by the car. Is that a lack of love? Was it hard? Did I hurt him? Did I save him? Yep. Love isn't always nice. Sometimes love comes in a demand that this will save you. This will rescue you. People in danger often get hurt because they don't realize they're in danger. That's why they got hurt. And it's the job of the pastor, it's the job of yours if you want to accept it, to rescue people from the fire. That's the kind of love Paul has in mind here. And Paul loved them too much to let them stay where they were. So therefore, Timothy, go tell them, you can't do that! And he said that our aim is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. If we yell at you, it's because we love you. And I would rather you be yelled at than to go into hell.
your right eye causes you to sin, baby it. Pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, pet it. Cut it off. It's better for you to go lame than it is for you to go into hell. Sometimes love has to be tough. And it's because it comes from love. In conclusion, Dove told me this morning that if he raises his cane, I need to stop talking. I'm not seeing the cane. So we're good? Okay, all right, very good. Because we're, we're in like 47 minutes, and so I'm about to be done. Don't see the cane, so we're good. <laughs> I'm crazy, I'm sorry. Five ways to avoid false teaching, okay? I want to uh, uh, give you five little ways, and I'm sure there are more. These are just me giving you some things to think about. To avoid false teaching and to avoid becoming a false teacher, Okay? Five ways to avoid false teaching and five ways for you to not become a false teacher. You ready? Number one, don't presume to be a teacher flippantly. James 3.1, not many of you should presume to be teachers because in so doing you incur a stricter judgment. I don't stand here. I stand here in fear and trembling. I've got to constantly be assessing. Am I right? Was I right in that five years ago? Or was I right? Am I right in that now? Do I need to, what's wrong? What's, am, I, am I wrong? I have to be doing that. I have to be doing that. You must do that. Don't presume yourself to be a teacher. Do not presume to be a teacher. It is not a light thing to do. When we ask you to lead a connect group, we're not asking you to become a teacher. We're asking you to facilitate. I recognize, and I, students will come to me and say, they want to teach in chapel, and I say, no. And sometimes people say, why don't you let my kid teach? I'm like, because James 3.1 they're going to incur a stricter... If they stand in the position of authority saying, I've heard from God, this is for you, they incur a stricter judgment. Is that true or untrue? It's true. Should I just let them flippantly stand up here and teach everybody? No! No! A thousand times no! It's not because I don't want them to teach us. I love them. It's not flippant. It matters. So don't just flippantly assume you're a teacher. You know how you'll know you're a teacher? You know how you know, well, that's a different, you know how you'll know? A, it'll, it'll, it'll come naturally to you. It's a spirit gift. It's just crazy. I'm an INTJ. I'm an introvert. And you know what wears me out? Being in public. You know how I get recharged? By being alone. And you know what God did? He gifted me with an extrovert gift of teaching. It's not my choice. I don't stand here because I choose teaching. He made me a teacher. And it wears my rear end out. But I can't help but do it. It's what He gave me. It'll just come. It'll be natural. You'll love it. And then you know what will happen? People will come to you. People run from you as a teacher is a good shot. You're not a teacher. Like, that guy's horrible. It's like, oh dear God. It's like nobody's ever around. It's like, it's a good shot. You're not a teacher, Right? And another way you can tell is inside community. Your pastors, whose job is to oversee your soul for your salvation, will affirm for you if you have the ability to teach. That's part of their job. And your job's not to correct them, but to submit to them. What did we see last week in Hebrews chapter 13? We have charge over your soul. We're not just saying, oh, we want to be mean to you. Yeah, I'm trying to poo on your parade. Aim is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Second way you can avoid false teaching and avoid being a false teacher is don't come to expositional conclusions using extra-biblical texts. Use Scripture to interpret Scripture. I teach my high school students this. If your conclusion cannot be attained by normal Spirit-filled, Bible-believing men, women, and pastors with no special degree, it's probably wrong. That makes sense? If you have to use another source other than the Bible to come to the conclusion you've drawn out of that text that it would take a person with a master's degree to get, your conclusion's wrong. This is the thing I, I have to constantly keep in front of me is what about those pastors in China who have no secondary education, but believe the gospel and get a hold of a Bible in their language, 
How do they shepherd churches of two and three hundred people in multiple house churches? How do they do that? It's in the manual. And if I need something other than the manual is a good shot, my conclusion's bogus. Bible's enough. It really is. Third, do not build theological systems on obscure passages of Scripture, particularly on obscure single verses. The Bible's one book, 66 chapters, one author, many scribes, one story, supporting cast members, and one main character. So build systems on the whole of Scripture, not isolated passages that become a hobby horse. Does that make sense? Interpret all things through the lens of the whole Bible, which is why we give you a Bible reading plan. We encourage you to read so that you can go to the text. And by the way, this is a long term. This is, this is immediate. You need this now. Man, you need this 20 years from now. I mean, I tell my students this all the time. And it's important for you to get, you're not going to have arrived tomorrow. I'm 21 years into the same Bible reading plan for 21 years. New Testament and Psalms twice a year, Old Testament once. 15 minutes a day. Easy to do. And I'm still reading stuff going, dang, where's that been? Like, I've read it like this 42nd time I've read through that. How come I'm just now getting this? Dude, it's a long-term proposition. But you know what? The Bible will interpret itself. It's self-interpreting. It's self-attesting. Fourth, leave your personal agenda on the table. Don't go to the text looking to justify your deal. Go to the text with a blank agenda and let the text fill your agenda. Don't use the Bible like Adolf Hitler. Hitler justified what he did using Scripture. And we could do the same thing. Leave your agenda on the table. Go to the text looking for the text to fill your agenda. Finally, gather with the people of God to be equipped to worship and to filter your study through community and then submit to the leadership and the community as we submit to Christ. That's how. That's how. Guys, I hope you understand that what's at stake this morning is not just your entertainment or not that you came to church to receive something, but salvation. Every time you wake and are conscious, remaining in the gospel is at stake. Because you know what? You can walk away from Jesus signifying you've never been with Jesus. And that's no good for you. You must remain in Christ. You must let the text tell you what to say, when to say it, how to say it, what you believe, what you think. It is central. Our job is to make sure for love's sake and for your good and Jesus' glory that we stay on task. Life together on mission. The mission's that important. It really is. And you know what? The redeemed heart wants to sing about that. It wants to sing about that. He wants to delight in Christ the King. He wants to kneel at the feet of Christ and give Him all we have because He loves us that much. Mightn't John Mark give me a hug with a broke collarbone because I rescued him from a 45 mile an hour SUV? Yeah. Yeah. Why? Because he's thankful. You know what? Jesus loves His people enough to send us a word. And our response can be none other than thank you, Jesus. And make much of Him and worship Him. You want to do that with me? Let's do it together. Let me pray for you. Father, I do ask that in the name of Jesus, for the glory of Jesus Christ, the advancement of His kingdom, that Lord, You would do a supernatural work that cannot be measured by our frail ways of measurement. Holy Spirit, I pray you to go deep into the hearts of your people and I pray that you would move powerfully in the hearts of your people. I ask you to sink deep into the reaches of the souls of your people and pray that you would do a supernatural work that we can only dream of. Lord, I pray you would keep in the faith. I pray you would convict, convince concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
I pray you subdue. I pray you release. I ask you to do what we can't do. Lord, I also pray that you would move us to make much of you. That you would move our soul to continue the song. To continue our presentation to you this morning. Because you are worthy. You are worthy. Only you are worthy. So Lord, we pray today you be glorified. That our souls would be encouraged. And that in all of that, your people would find great joy.